Good evening and welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. Tonight we are talking about Boris Johnson betraying the North by rolling back on some of his HS2 promises. COVID in Europe, um, not looking as good as it has been over the past few months. And Jordan Peterson's intervention on Question Time last night. That's definitely one to watch. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? Michael, I'm very good. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm not too bad. I should say, I'm, I'm sure a lot of you have seen the breaking news that Carl Rittenhouse has been found not guilty of all charges. On first glance, seems incredibly shocking. I should say, we're not going to cover that tonight just because we didn't have time to book an American guest. And I don't think um, I'm in a position to really do the story justice, but it's, I imagine, something we could well be coming back to on Monday. In 2019, Boris Johnson gave a speech at the Manchester Museum of Science and Industry and said the following, I want to be the Prime Minister who does with Northern Powerhouse Rail what we did for Crossrail in London, and today I'm going to deliver on my commitment to that vision with a pledge to fund the Leeds to Manchester route. Two years on, so that's in February this year, the Prime Minister told Parliament the following, I can certainly confirm that we are going to develop the eastern leg as well as the whole of the HS2. This week, the government announced it was scrapping both. The eastern leg of HS2, which would have linked Birmingham to Leeds, is being scrapped. Instead, the eastern leg of HS2 will only go so far as East Midlands Parkway, which will sit between Nottingham and Derby. At the top of that map, you can also see the proposed Northern Powerhouse high-speed line that would have linked Manchester, Bradford and Leeds has been scrapped. Keir Starmer used the announcement as an opportunity to highlight Boris Johnson's habit of breaking promises. The north of England have been betrayed because the Prime Minister made two very important promises. HS2 all the way uh, to Leeds, a new line. Um, that promise has been ripped up. He also promised the northern powerhouse rail a new line from Manchester to Leeds, and that plan's been ripped up. This was the first test of levelling up, and the government has completely failed and let down everybody in the north. And you can't believe a word the Prime Minister says. The government's defence of the revised plan is that they still involve upgrades across England's network, even if there are fewer brand new lines. For example, in terms of journey times, they argue... Whilst the Leeds to Manchester route won't be quite as fast as previously planned, it is still going down from 55 to 33 minutes. And that 33 minutes is only four minutes slower than in the original plan. On the flip side, other journeys will be significantly longer under the new plan compared to the one that's been scrapped. Leeds to London will now take one hour 53 minutes instead of the one hour 21 minutes it would have taken on HS2. Birmingham to Leeds also gets much longer than had been projected. That's taking 90 minutes instead of the 49 minutes it would have taken under the original plans. What that chart shows was that while most cities will still get improved connectivity, it will be limited compared to previous plans. So it's still getting better, but not as good as it had been promised. But there are some cities left with no improvements at all. Most notable here is Bradford, which would have been a station on the original Northern Powerhouse Rail, but now gets nothing at all. Nada. And Yorkshire is the big loser under the revised plans, which did not go unnoticed by local media. The Yorkshire Post argued the region had been sold out by Boris Johnson. The Prime Minister is, as usual, not accepting fault. Here he is talking to Channel 4 News. 
What we're doing is leveling up across the country by giving people uh, in the Midlands and in the North the kind of commuter type services that people have been accustomed to in the Southeast. You've broken, your, you've broken your promises to people here, no. pledges on Leeds to no. Manchester. Do you think, you know, you're cutting, you're, and, and you're cutting, you promised Northern Powerhouse Rail between Leeds and Manchester, and you're talking about speed, not capacity. Do you think people in the North are stupid? You're talking total rubbish, because we're doubling capacity between Manchester and Leeds. But you're cutting capacity on what it would have been. We're trebling capacity between Liverpool and Manchester. And of course, Christian, there are going to be people who's, you know, who always want everything uh, at once. And there are lots of people who say, well, look, what we should do is carve huge new uh, railways through virgin territory, smashing through unspoiled countryside and, and, and villages and, and, and do it all, all at once. Now, the problem with that is they, those, those extra high speed lines take decades uh, and they don't deliver the commuter benefits that I'm talking about. We will eventually do them. I mean, we're building more than 100 miles. Yeah, but you're derailing, levelling up here, aren't you? Yesterday, you said you crashed the car on sleeves. Now you're derailing, levelling up by cutting your promises. Total rubbish. Total rubbish. This is, this is, you're talking total rubbish. This is the biggest investment in, uh, in, in rail in the history of uh, the country, or at least for 100 years. And it's a, it's a fantastic thing. That was Boris Johnson insisting that the revised plans for rail upgrades will mean the Midlands and North get commuter-type services comparable to the South East. He also insisted that capacity across the network is being increased and that we can now do this without smashing through villages and get the upgrades done to a faster timetable. Is he right? I'm joined by John Stone, the independence policy correspondent who has written extensively on HS2, the go-to guy on Twitter for commentary on high-speed rail. Thanks for joining us this evening. What's your verdict on Boris Johnson's revised rail plans? I think Northern leaders are right to be disappointed, actually, and feel betrayed. They actually spent years um, working with the government as the co-client on this project. So they didn't just pull it out of nowhere. They were working with the Department for Transport at every step of the way, drawing up these plans. The government suggested it was going to go with it and then it just at the last minute took it to review and said and then came back and its treasury says no um what they were asking for wasn't pie in the sky they were already being pragmatic and i think the the key thing to get across here is that those journey times that the government's put out are actually quite misleading because this project is partly about journey times journey times across the north are too slow but it's also about capacity um and the, basically, what the government's done is they, they say they can do this scheme just by upgrading existing lines. Um, but what that doesn't do is add a lot of capacity. So really, to, to properly improve capacity, what you need to do is to separate those high-speed services going between the centres of Leeds and Manchester or the centre of Liverpool from the commuter services that stop at every station. If you have them all on the same line then the, it, it really restricts capacity a lot because the fast services catch up with the slow services. You have to, you have to leave a lot of space in the timetable. You can run through fewer trains per hour. You separate them out, and there's actually a much better service for slow trains and fast trains. And uh, really, that's what's missing here. So when the government says it's increasing capacity, it's really misleading because they're just talking about city centre to city centre capacity. But the people who will really lose out are people at uh, smaller stations and towns, which is the people that the government says that will actually benefit. But that just isn't the case. And that's because, as you 
sort of described, and it was a while ago, your, I, I call it your seminal HS2 piece. The issue is that trains can't overtake each other on the same line, right? So, so what the government is saying is that when, for example, I'm plucking the numbers out of my head, but before we had two trains from Leeds to Manchester an hour, now it's going to be four trains um, an hour. You're saying that's not where it, what really matters. What really matters is you can have an intercity service that doesn't have to wait for the high-speed train to go you know, all the way across before it can start again. So you, you need two lines so you can separate those. Yeah, so you can always try and cram more trains on the same line. But I mean, what the government hasn't talked about when it says it's going to increase the number of intercity trains is it's not just that there are stations that won't get improvements. There may actually be uh, a situation where smaller stations actually get a worse service um, because they're trying to squeeze those extra trains down the line. And, you know, you just end up with the faster trains missing more stops. And uh, really, overall, it, it could actually end up with a worse situation. And with railways, you always get the case where there's a trade-off between how much you try and squeeze out of the railway and how reliable it is. So when you're trying to squeeze more down the same line, if something goes wrong, then it goes to pot. And that's another big problem with railways in the north is the reliability. The reason that they wanted a separate line, it wasn't just because they wanted all the bells and whistles. Actually, the, what they were asking for was quite standard. And in any other Western or even Central European country, there would be a, a high-speed line connecting the two biggest cities in the north or you know, in the, in the primary region. And this country just seems unable to build it, really. Why is that? Because obviously there's a short-term thing here. Rishi Sunak has said, we don't want to spend more than 3% of GDP on capital spending. People are saying this is just an arbitrary Tory decision. At the same time, I mean, this isn't a new thing. Like Britain just seems to be absolutely terrible at building, well, I say rail infrastructure, but kind of any infrastructure at all. Why are we so bad at this? I think there's a lot of reasons and it's a complicated answer, but I do think that probably the most important thing we could do to fix that is just to have proper regional and local government in this country. Um, if you look at somewhere like France or uh, Germany, I mean, these are, these are countries where France is considered to be quite centralised, but you have local mayors and uh, regional governments that basically push these projects forward. and um, they can raise their own tax. They don't just advocate for them as ours do, but they can actually raise their own taxes. They can actually raise their own money on the bond market sometimes or borrow to actually do these projects. And in this country, you need Westminster's attention and you need their attention for a long enough time to plan and deliver a project. And that isn't always the case. And there's also the there's also a slightly separate issue that you mentioned, which is, you know, the Treasury is the Treasury. And it just seems allergic to borrowing to invest. And I mean, there's, it's it's difficult to know what you do about that. Maybe there's a case for abolishing the Treasury and replacing it with just a normal finance ministry that doesn't have so, so much sway. I don't know. Maybe that's a topic for another day. But um, and it's also worth noting that generally, although things are particularly difficult in the UK, I think it is a matter of degree. Other countries do have problems building, uh, building some things. And uh, it's not just the UK where there are issues. I mean, China's built a lot of high-speed rail in the last decade, uh, more than the rest of the world combined. And that's very admirable, but it's also a lot easier for an authoritarian government to just build stuff. There's no cause, there's no judicial review. Planning isn't really a problem for them, and they can just do it. So there is a trade-off, and we're probably never going to be able to go at, at, uh, at the same speed that they are. Does that explain the cost as well? You know, I'm sort of generally in favour of spending money on things that aren't fossil fuel powered. So I'm, I'm pretty pro HS2. But I was always kind of confused about why the cost went from £20 billion, which was the estimation in, in 2010, to £107 billion, which was the est estimate like a couple, or the projection a couple of years ago. Like what explains that? Is that just how much this stuff costs? Or was there, you know, some 
weird mismanagement going on somewhere? The cost question is a really interesting one, and it's actually a lot of reasons taken together. I think for HS2, the main one is that it's HS2 is actually a lot of different projects merged into one. So um, it's uh, a major redevelopment of Euston Station, which costs a few billion quid. It's a major tunnel into London underground, which costs, again, billions of pounds. It's basically like building Crossrail again. The Eastern Leg would be a separate project. Redoing Birmingham Moor Street would be a separate project. In a country like maybe France or Germany, they would do these as individual discrete projects. Uh, maybe the state government would take control of some of the more local stuff like station redevelopments. Here we bundled it all into one. Like HS2 isn't just a mega project. It's like five or six mega projects. Another reason for the cost is that it's also fundamentally different to a lot of continental high-speed railway lines as well. So in somewhere like France, Belgium, Italy, they actually already have a lot of capacity in their city centres. Um, I used to live in Brussels and there's a massive six-track railway viaduct going through the centre that they built in the 50s by like knocking down half the city. And the high-speed trains, when they get to the city centre, they run on that. But the, the UK doesn't really have anything like that in city centres. So we're having to actually build that. That's the most expensive bit because building in the uh, centre of the city is expensive. You need to use a lot of land. The land is more expensive. It's more disruptive. You kind of have to put it underground. You wouldn't be able to get away with knocking down half of London or Manchester or Birmingham now. Really, once you take into account a lot, uh, a lot of that stuff, then it probably isn't too different to the cost of projects elsewhere. I would say, are these projects more expensive than they need to be because a lot of people are making a lot of money off government contracts? Probably. I would expect so. I don't have any particular evidence, though, to suggest that that's more the case in the UK than, say, Italy or France, or particularly on HS2 compared to other projects in the UK. Although, you know, there's clearly, clearly there is a problem with costs on major civil projects just running out of control. I want to go to one final point is, is there a brute electoral logic going on here? This is a reference to something Stephen Bush wrote in The New Statesman. So he said on this decision, on this scaling back decision, although scrapping the Birmingham to Leeds leg of HS2 does harm the North, it also means avoiding large scale construction projects in Ashfield, Bolsover, North East Derbyshire, Robber Valley and other marginal conservative constituencies in South Yorkshire in the Midlands, where HS2 means years of building work, but no new train station. And the, the broader argument that he's making in that piece is that while, you know, doing HS2 properly, that would benefit lots of the cities, the cities vote Labour anyway, and it wouldn't necessarily benefit the more peripheral towns. So that's why they're, they're not bothering to do it. Do you, do you buy into that argument at all, John? I think it's difficult to know what the government's thinking is. I mean, there's some evidence for that. Um, because HS2, where it goes through and doesn't stop, is complex. On the other hand, it will actually benefit towns and smaller towns and cities because it's what allows you to take the fast trains off the uh, the existing main lines and to run more stopping services to those towns. So it, it does actually benefit them in that in that situation. But then, on the other hand, that hasn't been very well communicated by the government. I would say probably very very few people know that because the government hasn't even made that argument really it's just in the technical documentation of what railway engineers say it's for on whether or not the government has used that logic i think maybe it was a con something they took into account but i mean a lot of the the so-called red wall mps um like say jake berry who's chair of the the northern research group which is the sort of self-appointed group of that amongst tory mps he actually was the most outspoken for keep for keeping the eastern leg in particular. 
Um, so he went to, um, so he actually challenged Boris Johnson at a prime minister's questions the day before and said, you know, please keep your promise, do what you said you were going to do. Other MPs are less less pro. I think Ben Bradley was celebrating it as a decision. Um, there's that bloke from Ashfield who keeps getting into a lot of trouble, who I think was probably quite anti it as well. It may have been a factor. I think, to be honest, the main thing was probably the cash and just the treasury dogma. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Even if it would give them more frequent trains, you don't get a shiny new station, I think is, is partly what Stephen Bush was getting at. John Stone, thank you so much for, for coming on this evening and sharing your expertise on this rail story, because I have to admit, I would have been a little bit lost. So, so thank you so much for speaking to us this evening. Thanks for having me on. I want to get your thoughts on this, Aaron, because I know you, you covered for Ash today on the Cortado. You wrote about this this topic and this story. Your takeaway was partly that you know it was a disappointment that they'd, they'd retracted from their full plan, but you also highlighted that the government saying they're going to spend this much on infrastructure, that's still kind of new and suggests that the political centre has moved somewhat. Do you want to expand or, or elaborate on that? The government essentially said yesterday that it was going to invest £96 billion in, in, in public transport infrastructure. Of course, last month with the budget, I think there was £6.9 that was being spent on public transport in major cities in the north. So Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds got some news on that yesterday, uh, some updates on the West Midlands. You're looking at like £100 billion worth of funding, HS2, still an extraordinarily you know, large project. Of course, HS1 has, has principally happened during the Conservatives since since 2010, they chose not to axe it as a coalition government. One of the things they chose not to axe, uh, and Northern Powerhouse Rail, which is in, entirely of their confection. And yes, it's radically pared back, but it's still quite a big investment in public infrastructure. And it feels to me, Michael, that this is is more than what Ed Miliband and Labour were offering in the 2015 manifesto. You know, even in 2015, in the manifesto, it's available for everyone to read online. Very clearly states we're pro HS2, but for as little as possible. So the idea that they would have, you know, done the Eastern Spur, that they would have done Northern Powerhouse Rail, I find that very unlikely. Keir Starmer in 2017 himself opposed HS2 because it was going to create noise at Euston. I mean, maybe you don't live in central London, but whatever. Maybe I'm being unfair. That's what he has to say as a local MP. I get it. Um, so it, it does feel that the sort of political centre on this kind of stuff has, has shifted quite dramatically. Partly because of, yes, um, Brexit, but I think also partly now, and, and John sort of touched upon this, you've now got the emergence of two distinct forces in English politics you didn't have before. Firstly, these new mayors, who are increasingly prominent, particularly Labour mayors at the moment, Manchester, Liverpool with Andy Burnham, Steve Rotherham, Tracy Brabham's only just got in, um, a few other figures. I mean, they're the most prominent ones, obviously, because where HS2 goes. Uh, less so Andy Street in the West Midlands. He's perfectly happy with what's going on because he's a conservative. But they're a big prominent voice. And then you've got these new Tory MPs in quote unquote red wall seats, one of who is Jake Berry, who is dissenting on the government's position on this, saying we need to take this further. And they're actually the outriders on this. And they're pushing the kind of political common sense quite a bit further here. So Westminster, the likes of Keir Starmer, Ed Miliband, you know, Rishi Sunak, this is not the sort of infrastructure they would have been comfortable doing just a couple of years ago. And now it feels like there's this arms race going on about who can build the most high-speed rail in England. You know, Labour was in government for 13 years, and I'm not knocking Labour here. I mean, it's, it's a terrible record. It's just an observation. Labour in, in government for 13 years, they barely built any really innovative public sector infrastructure when it came to mass transit, really. I mean, the real leader on this stuff was, of course, 
uh, Ken Livingston. And, and, and he did that initially standing as an independent in London. So, uh, and that's not to sort of fixate on the past and blame Labour. It's to say clearly something shifted now um, in terms of leveling up, in terms of taking infrastructure and spending and politics outside of the M25. That's really new. And, and what I say in, in, um, in the Cotado is that, you know, perhaps, and I say this provocatively, that doesn't happen without Brexit. You've now got millions of voters in the Northwest, in the West Midlands, in the East Midlands, in the Northeast, whose votes are no longer taken for granted uh, and who now want a piece of the pie. And that might sound like I'm sort of rotating political cliches in circulation every 10 minutes on the BBC. But before 2015, they really were secondary in the conversation. It was about keeping on top of the budget, austerity, we can't spend too much, low tax economy. And the, the Tories and the Labour Party kind of had a great deal of consensus on that. That's now shifted. One of the big themes in English politics, I don't say British politics, English politics, is more spending on critical infrastructure outside of London. Of course, London's had that for quite a while, had Crossrail, it's had a bunch of other spending as well over the years, far more per head is spent on transport in London than anywhere else in England. That's increasingly being recognized. And it wasn't that long ago that people like Laura Koonsberg were mocking Jeremy Corbyn for raising uh, the, the price of bus fares outside of London, how it was simply unaffordable for regular people. That's now the political common sense, not because of Corbyn, but I think it's a factor. Corbyn, Brexit, and of course, more recently, COVID-19. And let's go to our next story. Austria currently has Europe's highest per capita rate of daily COVID infections. And as a result, the country's chancellor has announced that from Monday, Austria will enter a three-week lockdown. Now, lockdown has, of course, become a much abused term. We've become used to even minor restrictions in the UK being called lockdowns or, or a threat of a lockdown. But in this case, it does genuinely fit the bill, according to the Associated Press. People will be able to leave their, leave their homes only for certain specific reasons, including buying groceries, going to the doctor or exercising. Wolfgang Muckstein, the country's health minister, said that kindergartens and schools would remain open for those who needed to go there. But all parents were asked to keep their children at home if possible. This is a proper lockdown. At the same time this lockdown was announced, the government confirmed another policy to limit infections, mandatory vaccinations. Austria's Chancellor Alexander Schollenberg has announced that from February, all Austrians will be obliged to get vaccinated. The details of how the mandate will work are yet to be confirmed, but Schollenberg has said failure to get vaccinated will likely result in a fine. So why is Austria taking such drastic action? The country, alongside other German-speaking nations, has lower rates of vaccination than the rest of Western Europe. Almost 25% of Austrians over 12 have not had a single dose of vaccine. That compares to 13.6 in the UK, 8.9% in France, and a stunning 1.5% in Portugal. So 98.5% of people over 12 have had at least one dose of, of a vaccine in, in Portugal. Quite incredible. Um, that higher rate appears to have contributed to a higher caseload. So on Friday, um, people in Austria tested, tested positive at a rate of 1,400 per 100,000 people. It was an all-time high for the country. Um, and you know, for a, a comparison, that compares to a rate of 580 per 100,000 on the same day in Britain. So you can see that Austria, far and away, um, really, really high case, really high case rates. You've got 
down at the bottom there, France, Italy and Spain, they've all got very high vaccination rates and are doing pretty well. Germany, not particularly good vaccination rates and it, it's now catching up with the United Kingdom. We have been sort of at a steady state, but at a high level for quite a while now. Combined with low vaccination rates, these high infections are feeding into high levels of occupancy in intensive care. Austria, again, way up there um, compared to its European neighbours and um, ultimately to higher death rates. Higher and, and dramatically increasing. That is a, that's the kind of spike you don't want to see. Again, what you see there is the United Kingdom at a fairly steady but high state. It's now been overtaken by Germany, Belgium and Austria when it comes to death rates. So why is it the case German-speaking countries appear to be suffering from low vaccination rates? I mean, I imagine it's, it's not something intrinsic to the language, but according to the Financial Times, polling by Erfurt University gives some indication why many Germans don't want jabs. 80% of unvaccinated respondents said they needed to weigh up the risks and benefits first, and 41% simply considered vaccination unnecessary. Anti-vaccine sentiment intersects strongly with anti-establishment and populist politics. A force of poll conducted on behalf of the German Health Ministry found that half of unvaccinated respondents had voted for the right-wing populist AFD in the recent federal election. In Austria, the right-wing populist Freedom Party has become vociferous in its opposition to vaccination measures. Last month, party boss Herbert Kickel opposed, spoke, sorry, spoke about terrifying links between vaccines and tumours. Um, we can also see how the Chancellor of Austria explained the need for mandatory vaccines. So he said after making the announcement, the political consensus has been against compulsory vaccination in this country, and I also believed people should be persuaded to be vaccinated for their protection, for the protection of their loved ones, but also for, for the protection of society. But we have too many political forces, flimsy vaccine skeptics and spreaders of fake news in this country. Despite campaigns, too many people have still not been vaccinated. Austria joins Indonesia, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan and the Federated States of Micronesia as the only countries to have made vaccines compulsory. Aaron, I want your thoughts on this. We've tended to be fairly relaxed about things like vaccine passports. Is compulsory vaccinations for everyone taking this a step too far? I mean, it depends on the context, doesn't it, Mike? We've had this debate so many times. If you're in a situation where you have a pathogen like Ebola, which kills 50% of the people it gets... I mean, you're going you're gonna to introduce something like that. And I think hard and fast rules, one way or the other, I would never do this or I would always do this, probably don't make much sense. In terms of why this is happening in Germany and Austria, it's quite interesting. Um, I think it can be traced back to the fact that, you know, they, they do, and again, this is not a general rule, and I'm not universalizing this idea, but with systems that have proportional representation, you have these smaller right-wing parties who, while they don't necessarily win power, do have a huge amount of say in the sort of public conversation. And we don't have that in the UK. And so if you look at a party like the AFD, small, probably won't ever get near power. But what you do see in German civil society is a major political player, which is climate denying, which is, you know, overtly Islamophobic and then does stuff like this. You look at the Tories, as terrible as they are, they aren't climate deniers. You know, there are huge amounts of climate deniers in them, but they, they want to be in a party which is near power and can be, you know, can make money and they want the status. So they have to go into this broad tent organization because of the nature of our electoral system. And they have to be relatively, on some things, quite moderate. You know, they, they can't be explicitly climate denying. 
They can't be saying that vaccines don't work, although many of their members think that. I'm sure many of their MPs think that too, privately. Many, some. Uh, so it's a, different, it's a different game with the Freedom Party and the AfD in Germany. Same on climate change. I've always backed proportional representation because I think in a democracy, you need a democratic electoral system. But this is one of the downsides. You will have political organizations which appeal to a significant minority of public opinion and sway it. That's part of democracy. Good. But this can happen. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see a sort of comparative study about this stuff and, and electoral systems. On the other hand, of course, the United States is first past the post. You know, it's a simple two-party system. This, it, you know, this is also a problem there, although not seemingly as bad as in the German-speaking countries. So it's an interesting hypothesis. You know, meanwhile, in Britain, you have some pretty crazy opinions over here. But because you've got the public service broadcaster, which I'm not a fan of, that model, having a huge quasi-monopolistic share of, of broadcast media, because you've got the two-party system, actually, the, these, these circles which refute vaccines, which say we shouldn't take it, etc., are far smaller than in Germany and Austria. That's not a comment on whether or not they're right. I don't think they are right. I think these people are generally speaking nuts. I'm sure some of our viewers disagree, but it's an observation as to why I think it's happened in Germany. Let's so here. I've just Googled this, so I should maybe study the data a bit more, but I think Germany is still better than the United States. Germany only looks bad now compared to where it was a few, a few months ago and compared to highly vaccinated Europe. America is, is still screwed on this front. You know, I do find your PR argument very persuasive, but yeah, as you say, I was going to point out that America are a very different story. I suppose you could say that, again, with the climate, it's the same, that in PR, you are going to get those extremes, which when it comes to vaccines can be, you know, dangerous. When it comes to climate, less so, because it doesn't really matter if you've got a minority of climate skeptics, so long as there is a, set, uh, you know, a, a consensus which is pro-taking action on it, or at least pro-accepting the science as a sort of base level for policymaking. Um, but yeah, and with the first-past-the-post system, it's a big risk, right? Either you, either you completely exclude vaccine skeptics and um, climate deniers from politics, or you give them one of the two major parties of, of government. And I do think that if the Republicans win the presidency in two years' time, it's going to be really terrible for the climate. You know, I, I know, you know, we often talk about how you know, the Democrats and the Republicans on so many issues, they're, they're very similar. Having just uh, one of the most powerful governments in the world, not believing that COVID is particularly real, not believing that climate change really matters, I do find that quite terrifying. Let's talk about what's going to happen in Britain. One thing that I think is going to become apparent in terms of sort of political discussions about COVID policy is that cases are rising in European countries where policies like mandatory face masks are in place. Perhaps some of the pressure for our government to move to Plan B will dissipate a bit. I'd still favour it because I've always said masks on tubes, in shops, vaccine passports to go into nightclubs. I don't think that's going to dramatically change the, the picture of COVID rates in, in Britain, but I think the costs are so low, we might as well do it. Um, but the government will be able to point to, to Germany and these countries and say, look, they're having a tough time. Um, and, and they've introduced those policies that you're talking about. I, I assume that argument will be made. What's also important to say is that it does seem um, like those high case rates has, has given us some natural immunity that could help us over winter, especially among young people. Obviously, there are downsides. It also means we'll have more people with long COVID. Significantly, though, and this is just a a win-win, we are doing very well when it comes to our booster rollout. So as you can see from this chart, the UK has administered more than twice the number of boosters as many of our European neighbours. So there have been 
Um, 20% of the British population have now received a booster, so a third vaccine dose. Aaron, my question for you, is it possible that this winter or by Easter, Britain you know, doesn't look like such a basket case when it comes to COVID policy? Could, could we have people arguing mm. that because we, you know, we didn't try and suppress cases too dramatically in autumn, that means there wasn't the same pressure to have a lockdown in winter as there will be in some European nations? That was the argument. And also Sweden's doing surprisingly well, which, of course, is real sucker for, uh, you know, the, the, the COVID sceptics. You know, they say we should have adopted this all along. There's a balance there. I, I can see why you'd adopt that approach with people who are otherwise relatively healthy. Like you say, the downside is, of course, long COVID. This is a giant experiment. On balance, I think the UK government's dealt with this pretty well since January this year, I feel. I don't know how you feel, Michael. It felt like Boris Johnson had turned a bit of a corner in terms of strategic communications, in terms of how assured he was. Yeah, January, February, March felt significantly better than last year. Last year, and I mean, it's easy to forget this, May in particular, May to December last year was, was probably the worst seven or eight months we've ever seen in the history of this country and poor governance and a complete absence of leadership. From top to bottom, test and trace, the kinds of advice being given, you know, the reopening of schools, the closing of schools, go back for one day, the complete absence of an opposition. There was a complete political failure in dealing with the crisis. A lot better this year, and I think that's reflecting the fact that the UK is doing a bit better. It's not no world leading, blowing everyone away, but it's a significant shift. That's why the Tories still, and people forget this, you know, the major political issue for the last four months has been COVID. You know, people don't keep up with John Lewis wallpaper and even the corruption stuff, you know, that's, that's huge. And it's not going away and it's a big story and it's cutting through, but it's background noise. And that's not going to overtake COVID. Maybe it's beginning to overtake COVID. It's not going to overtake COVID now until 2022. And the Tories on coronavirus this year have been okay, uh, particularly when you look at how dreadfully they dealt with it a year earlier. There's so much disagreement about this because lots of people look at the schools and say we let so many kids get COVID-19 when we could have vaccinated them earlier. I think we should have vaccinated them in the summer. To be honest, as we always said on this show, when it came to Freedom Day, when it came to opening nightclubs, et cetera, et cetera, there were always two reasonable arguments. One, which is to say, let's get a bit of immunity over the summer so that we don't have this, this huge surge in winter. I mean, it's still incredibly early. It could be the case that cases, yeah. if cases do fall in Austria, it'll be because they had a lockdown. So I'm pretty glad we're not in a situation where we have to have a three-week lockdown. So, you know, let's, I suppose... We can appreciate some of the things we have. Obviously, the, the people in the best situation now are Portugal, where 98.5% of people have been vaccinated. Mm. And that was without mandatory vaccination. So we need to work out what their secret was. It is a small population. It's, what, 10 million people? So e easier to administer than a country. I mean, that's mm. the thing with the US. I feel like people are saying, oh, Israel did it so quickly. The US did it. You know, Of course, Donald Trump's an idiot, et cetera. But Israel, tiny geographically, small population, You know, the, the, the logistical difficulties for a country like the US or China are infinitely harder than for a small European country. And more variability within the, you know, in terms of the politics of each area. If you are already a donor to Navara Media, thank you so much. You make all of this possible. If not, please do consider going to navaramedia.com forward slash support and donating the equivalent of one hour's wage a month. It's what makes all of this possible. We appreciate it so, so much. Next story. Andrew Marr has announced he is leaving the BBC after working for the corporation for 21 years, announcing the decision. He tweeted, 
personal announcement. After 21 years, I have decided to move on from the BBC. I leave behind many happy memories and wonderful colleagues. But from the new year, I am moving to Global to write and present political and cultural shows and to write for newspapers. Global is the media organisation um, which includes, I think, Capital, but definitely LBC and Classic FM, which are apparently the two stations he will be working for. Um, he goes on to say, I think British politics and public life are going to go through an even more turbulent decade. And as I've said, I am keen to get my own voice back. So he's tired of being at the BBC where he cannot say what he thinks because he's, you know, he has to be impartial. He's going to LBC and Classic FM to have some opinions. And finally, he says, I have been doing the Andrew Marr show every Sunday morning for 16 years now, and that is probably more than enough time for anybody. Um, we spoke about Andrew Marr's future career on a recent show because he appeared in, I think it was a Guardian article where they were saying that they were holding Andrew Marr on until the Queen died because he had a big role in lots of the coverage concerning her death. So when it comes to conspiracies that she's already gone or that she's about to go very soon, you could say Andrew Marr leaving in the new year could fit into that. Um, I mean, it might also just be that the guy's sort of working at the BBC. Aaron, big story. Will this affect the BBC's political coverage in any meaningful sense? Well, look, how's it going to affect Michael Walker? You are his number one critic. You know, you're the person who watches The Mars Show every Sunday. <laughs> who is this guy? You know, yeah. he's not done an interesting political interview for about a decade. It's worrying. I'm concerned for you, Michael. Who are you going to pick at now at the BBC? Now that Laura Coonsberg's going... I'm sure whoever they replace him with will, will, you know, there'll be a lot of problems. But Andrew Marr is especially, I have to say, you know, he doesn't seem like, he's not the most dislikable guy in TV, but he has not been very well briefed for quite a while now when he interviews politicians. I, he's, the, he's the least scary interviewer you could possibly face. I think he's terrible. And I think, I don't like really many BBC journalists. I think you, you look at something like Lewis Goodall, who's 20, 30 years younger than him, I don't know the exact numbers. He's so much more on top of things, so much more dynamic, so much more energy. You know, I mean, the point of duffers like Andrew Marr is they don't really say very much. Great interview with um, Noam Chomsky years ago. And he says to Chomsky, why do you think I self-censor? I don't self-censor and nobody tells me what to say. And Chomsky says, well, if you ask the wrong questions, you wouldn't be here working for the BBC interviewing me. And that's a perfect explanation as to why Andrew Marr has his job. You know, in 2014, he, he's a novelist, by the way. I talk about second jobs, despite us paying for him to be a journalist at the BBC. He's a novelist. He wrote a novel political novel. Has anybody read it? No idea. I've never really seen it in a bookshop. It was launched at number 10 Downing Street. And you think, hold on, you're meant to be holding these people accountable. You're meant to be scrutinizing their work as a journalist in your, in your day job, which we all pay for. And, and you're so chummy with them. They're doing you a favor that you can launch your little book, which nobody's going to read at number 10 in an evening soiree. Is that really how it's meant to work? Really? How can you be trusted to be holding them to account when you're calling in favors from them? They should be scared of you. That's what I think about Andrew Marr's kind of genre of political journalism. It's condensed in that little anecdote, that little vignette, Michael, of him launching his 2014 novel, which nobody's ever read, in Number 10 Downing Street. Yeah, I didn't know he had a novel, which I suppose proves your point, really. As you say, I think that's a very interesting fact that he launched it at Number 10. Um, that sums up quite a lot about British political journalism. Let's go to our final story. British cricket is in crisis. That's after a disgraceful ruling by Yorkshire County Cricket Club that racial epithets were just banter and the powerful testimony of Azim Rafiq, who has been speaking publicly about the racism he was subjected to at the club. This was Rafiq giving evidence earlier in the week to the Culture, Media and Sport Committee. I started to see for what it was, um, felt isolated, 
humiliated at times, um, constant use of the word packy. And this happened in front of teammates. It happened in front of coaching staff. Uh, we were on a bus trip uh, in London to Surrey game and we went past a couple of men with beard and it was like, oh, is that your dad? If we go past a corner shop or does your uncle own this? I mean, to make one thing very clear, packy is not banter. Racism is not banter. Um, end of 2017, um, we had a really difficult pregnancy. Um, and through that, um, through that time, the treatment that I received from some of the club officials were inhuman. Um, they weren't really bothered about the fact that I was at training one day and I get a phone call to say there's, there's no heartbeat. Sorry. At the time when I left, um, I had, I think, four or five months left on my contract. I was encouraged to sign a confidentiality form and take a sum of money, uh, which I refused, um, which at that time would have been a lot of money for me. Um, I knew my wife was struggling. I knew I was struggling. There was no way mentally I could have even considered putting myself through this trauma. Um, I actually left the country. I went to Pakistan. I never wanted to come back. I know that the pain that I went through for them a few months, no one could ever, ever put me through that pain again. That harrowing testimony from Rafiq has sparked a wider conversation about racism in cricket, but also about racism in Britain more generally. And some of that commentary, some of those interventions, both in the mainstream media and in Parliament, have been pretty thoughtful. I think it has sparked a, a useful and productive conversation in many ways. Other interventions have been less so. This was a question put to the Question Time panel this week. Um, so the panel were asked, with the revelations from Cricket's Azim Rafiq and footballers still taking the knee, what does this say about racism in present-day Britain? Reasonable question. The question wasn't the example of, of useless commentary. This is the example of useless commentary. It's how Canadian philosopher Jordan Peterson answered the question. Things need to be particularized rather than generalized as, as a general rule, let's say. And so this cricket player was facing racism by his own account. The question is who, when, what exactly? Because otherwise it degenerates into something like a discussion of structural racism. And when it becomes abstracted up to that level, first of all, that pits group against group, which I think is entirely counterproductive. And it actually doesn't address the issue. You know, racism is a, is a global and vague term. Sorry, but what, why, do you why, put why, in... why, did, why would you possibly do that? What did that mean? Because I said it was a global and vague no, no, the, term. No, the, the inverted commas is if it's not a real thing. What did... No, that isn't what it meant. Well, what did it mean then? Explain. It meant that it's indicative, indicative of low resolution thinking. These, and what, and what I mean by that? that is, we use all these terms frequently in discussions like this that are he, he was containers of, 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 of undifferentiated he content. He was repeatedly called abusive terms directly linked to his ethnicity. By who? By not just one, but repeated members of the Yorkshire Cricket Club. He's okay, had people well then, contacted then, him. Then if they, it walks like a tuck, duck, Jordan. Then they, it talks no, like a duck. I'm not it's a duck. It's I, racism. <laughs> I'm not denying his experience. Right. What I asked was exactly who and when, and you just answered that yes. question. So I would say those specific people should be held specifically to account for their actions. 
before any movement up the abstraction hierarchy to a discussion of something like structural racism, which well, I don't think is helpful. Well, he has talked about institutional racism in yeah. cricket. Mm -hmm. He says that's what he's experienced as a term, institutional racism. Right, I know, I know. And I, like I said, I, I believe that abstracting up the problem to that level of analysis does no good because it pits groups against groups. I think it exacerbates the problem, the concept of structural racism. It's too imprecise. It doesn't address the issue. Now, that doesn't mean, that does not mean racism does not exist. That is not what I'm saying in the least. I mean, I don't, how could you go on a national TV show without having done any research whatsoever into the story? It's like, we have to be very specific here. We have to be very particular. Who called who, what, when? Well, as Stella Creasy said, <laughs> we know precisely um, who was called what and by who. So it was Rafiq, he was called many racial epithets by other members of his team over a long period of time. When Jordan Peterson says, oh, institutional racism, that would be too abstract. Well, an investigation into those incidents by the cricket club found that using these racial epithets was just banter and actually blamed Azim Rafiq for taking it too seriously. So there is clearly institutional racism going on at that club. There have also been complaints about the fact that the the National Cricket Board was not intervening proactively enough into the case, which has led to, I think, a very persuasive charge of institutional racism there. And then one thing that has been very, very present in all of these sort of descriptions of what happened at that cricket club is that people accepted racism as if it were normal. Now, that sounds quite structural to me. That's not just about individuals. That's about how all of these individuals were socialized into the same society, which accepts racism. We've talked about Jordan Peterson before on the show, but I thought that was especially, I mean, it was just dumb, wasn't it? You're saying everyone else is yeah, guilty of low resolution thinking, which is the kind of thinking that means that you might have to read before you speak. Yeah, I've got two words for Jordan Peterson, uh, Michael, if he's watching, which is eat carbohydrates. Stop this whole meat diet. Stop this whole meat diet and salt because you've got the low resolution thinking. You know, you could see he was thinking really slowly and he's just, he's really tired. Jordan, have a, have a bowl of pasta, have a sandwich, have some rice, have some roast potatoes, you know, freshen things up. Because of course he's on this crazy diet of meat, salt and, and water. I, I think it probably isn't helping with his cognitive performance. What was interesting, of course, Michael, is he said, oh, you know, institutional racism doesn't mean anything. If you actually wind that clip back, he says that racism is a global issue. So he contradicts himself quite, uh, quite immediately. And I, I think he's kind of dining out, Michael, on, on his reputation. He had one stellar interview with Kathy Newman on Channel 4, where he was like an alt-right version of Bradley Cooper on Limitless, you know, the film. He was just like, you know, Neo in the Matrix, boop, 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 boop. It's like it's not the same guy, which why, you know, I, I return to my initial point, which is maybe try eating some carbohydrates. It's probably been several years. It's probably affecting your sleep. Uh, you know, it is a whole macronutrient. You know, there's three fats, proteins, carbohydrates. You, you can't eliminate it forever, Jordan. Please do yourself a favor. And until you, until you do, I don't think you should come back on British television because you, you make no sense. You make zero sense. Very embarrassing, not just for him, Michael, but also for his publisher. See, he did look like an intellectual charlatan there, really. What the hell is he doing on television? You see people on Twitter going, who is this Canadian guy? He's making no sense. It was quite funny. You know, he, a year ago, two years ago, he was this, well, two years ago, he was this enormous 
Anglosphere intellectual heavyweight. And it does feel that you know, how he's talking and so on, it's, it's a different guy. So, eat a sandwich. Let's see how it goes. Eat some carbs. I just want to show one tweet that I think also, you know, because in that case, it seems sort of like, oh, he was put on the spot. He just hadn't done the preparation before the show. Also, obviously, you know, an incredibly obnoxious person. He tweeted something earlier in the week, which, you know, obviously he wasn't put on the spot there, which I think just shows how both shallow and reactionary his philosophy is. So he tweets, there is simply no such thing as social justice. Whatever those who rely on this cliched phrase are aiming at has nothing whatsoever to do with justice. Justice is mated out at the level of the suffering individual. Who is it mated out by? It doesn't make it doesn't make any sense. If, what about unjust laws? How does that fit into that framework? What about an unjust distribution of resources? How would you possibly describe that without mentioning society or the state or the economy? It's sort of bad undergrad tweeting, isn't it? And, and this is a guy who, who sees himself as an intellectual titan. That was a shtick, Michael. And that's very sellable, right? You don't need to care about minorities. You don't need to challenge the political economic status quo. Tidy your room. And then, of course, there's the images of Jordan Peterson's house looking like a shit show. So, yeah, the right, the right has had some really impressive, especially the English-speaking right over the last 100, 150 years, has had some really impressive right-wing intellectuals and, and novelists, right? Uh, Evelyn Waugh, E.G. Woodhouse. You know, you go back to the 19th century, you've got European figures. You've got Wagner, you've got Nietzsche. Smart people. Um, and it says something about conservatism as a political tradition, as an intellectual tradition, that this guy is, is the flame holder for it um, because he hasn't really got that much to say. He's got some identical arguments on freedom of speech, and that's kind of about it. Um, he's not that intellectually curious. He seems quite limited in his range of interests. He is where he is, Michael, because frankly, there is, a, there is always going to be a massive audience to tell assholes that it's okay to be an asshole and to, to get a publishing deal off the back of it. There's always going to be an audience for that. Is he adding value as a conservative intellectual? I don't think so. You know, I, I do like to read these books and sort of engage with what these people are saying and thinking. And I, I listened to, um, what was this book called? The 12 Laws of, I don't know, Michael, you tell me. 12 Rules for Life is the book. First Tisky Sour was on 12 Rules for Life years well, ago. No, I, I, I We've come a long way, Michael, thank Christ. No, I, I, <laughs> I, I glanced over the text, but I listened to it as an audio book. It's terrible. And also, it's really long. It's like 500 pages. You know, read Dostoevsky. If you're going to invest that much in a book, Christ, it's not like it's 150 pages. Then I, I get it. Disposable trash ideology. This is actually an investment of your time. And he's not really saying very much. We don't need to go into Jordan Peterson. I think one of the reasons why he was so big as well, Michael, is because people are looking for answers. In a way, that's a really positive thing. Mm. People are looking for big ideas. Um, I, I just think he has particularly bad, big ideas. Aaron. Thank you for your interventions, as always. Um, it's been a pleasure, pleasure being joined by you tonight. You're always a pleasure to be with Michael. You know, the, 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 the master of ceremony when it comes to current affairs and Navarra media. It's always a, a gift to watch you in action. A safe pair of hands is how I like to think about it. Um, we'll be back on Monday at 7pm for now. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.